Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? And it's welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. Today I have with me the beautiful Leah Weston from Adelaide. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. How are you? Good. And Leah looks like she lives in one of those beautiful old sandstone houses. Is that right or does it just look beautiful? Uh, yes, no, it is. That is correct. We had, well, we, when we bought it, it wasn't beautiful. It was awful. Everything was painted cream or khaki. Uh, so we renovated the whole place. We basically gutted it and redid. So all the woodwork uh, was all redone, red pine and lots of hand polishing and uh, lots of hours. So it's it's done now, which is wonderful, but it was a very long process. So <laughs> Yeah. And what you've got to remember, everybody, is Leah is in what we call, used to call the City of the Roses. I'm not sure if Adelaide is still called that, but it's got all the most beautiful old buildings. Uh, and a lot of um, Europeans started in Adelaide and went up to the Barossa Valley. It's somewhere we all go for a visit, but not many of us get to live there. That's very true. So, uh, yeah, the, we're very sport for choice in Adelaide because we have such beautiful areas, quite distinct areas, but they're absolutely lovely and they're all a very short drive from the city centre. So, um, yeah, we're, we're very, very sport for choice here. Yeah, and I should imagine that's excellent fodder for a writer to be able to go off and daydream and do all those beautiful things. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're from 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 our house. We're just outside the city centre, like literally three kilometres from the city centre. We have the beach ten minutes to the east. Uh, sorry, the west rather. I'm very bad with directions. Uh, we have the hills ten minutes to the east. That's right. Uh, so. If you want any kind of environment, you want the beach, you want sand, you want hills, you want deep forests, uh, you can get there very, very quickly and um, and sit and write and absorb it. It's, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's such a lovely state. Yeah. And I think the last time we were over in WA, everybody, we were talking to Daria and her beautiful book, The Daughter of the Murray. Now we get the city side of of um, South Australia, which is really exciting as well. Uh, everybody, I'm prattling on here about our location because our international visitors are always very interested in in our locations here in Oz. Our romance writers do an awful, awfully good job about getting uh, word out about rural romances and the outback, um, but it's not as often that we get to, to write and talk about... Um, the beautiful state of South Australia and Adelaide itself. Um, how does that influence your writing and is Adelaide the setting for those pleasant girls, your latest novel? Um well, I'll start with the second part. Adelaide's not the setting for those pleasant girls. Um, those pleasant girls is inspired by a small town in South Australia called Panola, um, which is a place that I visited a lot. It is just gorgeous. Um, it's it's wine country, so it's one of the reasons why we visit it. <laughs> like the Barossa, like Clare, um, but the layout of Panola and the feel of Panola are really what inspired the town. Uh, the town in those pleasant girls, which is called uh, Sweet Meadow, uh, is a fictionalised version which is it's kind of a cross between Panola and Claire and a little bit of an influence initially when I started writing it of like the idealized English village uh where you know everyone knows everybody and people have been there for generations so um yes so so Panola is very much is very much that um and uh, yes I haven't actually managed to get back there in the last couple of months but I, I would like to go back and revisit because it will feel to me a little bit like revisiting uh the town that I wrote so uh, uh yes <laughs> but uh living in Adelaide uh in, I, I mean, I suppose every every environment influences your writing, um, but I feel very lucky. I'm actually from Sydney originally. Uh, we moved to Adelaide when I was about eight or nine, um, and at first it was a quite a shell shock because it was so so small compared to Sydney and we I remember we drove through the city and and my parents you know was, I'm sitting in the car thinking okay all right you know there's there are buildings this looks fairly familiar and then we got to the edge and kept driving and that was it and I was like is that that's the whole town. <laughs> you have to be kidding me. <laughs> where, where are we? What is this alien place? So, so at first it was, yes, it was very strange at first, but um, I, I, I absolutely love it. Like you, you don't realise 
how many good features it has until you've actually like left for a little while and then come back. And I moved back to Sydney when I'm, I was in my early 20s and, you know, that really cemented the fact of, you know, how much I'd taken for granted like living in Adelaide, especially in my teenage years. And, um, and it's wonderful. And the last few years particularly, I mean, it's a very progressive city, which I think a lot of people don't know. The last few years particularly, the art scene is just exploding. Um, there is so much underground art there. I mean, we have some beautiful, beautiful art galleries, uh, a lot of street art coming through, um, you know, new bars and restaurants and cafes and the food scene's really exciting. So, um, yeah, so it, it has had an influence in that way and particularly uh, for my next novel, there's a there's an, a quite a heavy art component and a lot of that has come from the galleries here, uh, the people that I've been fortunate enough to meet and, um, uh, yeah, so it's it's it, it's definitely had an influence in the in the loveliest way. And I'm pretty impressed um, as, we're listen- as, as we're listening to you, Leah. We are in the process of talking to you about the recent launch of book two and you're yes. already talking about book three and that's the funny thing about publishing, isn't it? It's almost <laughs> like you've put this one to bed and moved on to the next one. Um, before we start talking about book number three, which sounds very interesting, by the way. Uh, would you like to tell us how the launch went for book number two? It was on the 17th of uh, April, wasn't it? Uh, no, actually, it's on the 4th of May, so it's next Thursday. So um, so the book itself was was, was uh, published on the 26th of April um, and the launch is next week. So so I'm hoping uh, that it will go really well. I'm sure it will go really well. Thank you very much for asking. I'll be able to tell you later. <laughs> Just trust me, everybody. I really know what I'm talking about here. I plucked the 17th of April out of the sky, obviously. Okay, so what's involved in a book launch because that can be very very exciting and you have the support of your publisher and I'm saying Pan Macmillan because I've got the release here in front of me please tell me that that's correct it is it is Pan Macmillan they have they and they're absolutely lovely they've been just the best best people to work with I've been so lucky um and my you know my editor and the publishing director and everyone has been great so yes so I have been very lucky to as you say have support from my publisher for the launch. Um, I have uh, Dimmix uh, in Rondal Mall was my local bookshop. I, I, I plague them with requests for obscure titles uh, and they're very, very nice. So we, it was natural to have the launch there. Um, so that will be happening, yeah, so Thursday next week. Um, and really it was just a question of – I've also been lucky in the sense that with my day job, um, my husband and I run a bicycle shop. Uh, we have a, a pretty big custom base and I was lucky enough to be able to, to send out a quick hello to all of them to let them know about the launch. Uh, and a lot of them are coming, which is which is really, really nice um, because they're not necessarily readers but – they just like to, to to support us because we are, you know, we're a husband and wife team with one mechanic, so we're not a not a, a monolith by any means. Um, so yes, yeah, so I invited uh, everyone I knew pretty much uh, and a bunch of customers, and they're all turning up. Uh, they've all RSVP, which is very kind. Uh, and uh, another another customer of ours is actually uh, a, a winemaker. Uh, he works. He's one of the winemakers for Chapel Hill Wines. Uh, so we contacted them and said, "Look, would you be interested?" and being a sponsor and, and um, supporting us and they very kindly said yes so they're bringing some wine to the event uh, and I think Dimmicks are doing cupcakes I believe she said which is very exciting <laughs> they normally do cheese but she said she was going to do cupcakes this is Louise uh, uh, is my contact there Mandy Mackey is the woman who runs Dimmicks Adelaide um, and yeah they're just lovely uh, so yes wine, wine cheese cupcakes and, uh, and and I'm lucky also to have a, a gentleman to launch the book, Patrick Allington. Uh, he's an Adelaide writer. He's also a book critic and reviewer. He's a novelist himself. He's written this beautiful, beautiful book called Figurehead, um, uh, I think by Black Ink Press, I believe, if you are interested, you know, I'd recommend people check it out. He's a wonderful writer and he'll be launching the book. And hopefully all I have to do is just say a few words, thank people and then and then sit and, and sign books because <laughs> I get very nervous if I have to talk. So <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I don't know why because you talk very well and you talk very beautifully, Leah. I wouldn't be worried or nervous at all. Do you have okay. a copy of your book there that you can hold up the cover? Ooh, I I've got one do. here. Yeah, you got oh, it? Okay. I've, yeah. got, I've got one in the background. Hang on, let me just leap and grab it. Okay, while Leah's gone, she's gone off to grab the cover of her book. Um, part of the book is is based very heavily around food. So the reason we've gone, Leah's ducked off to grab her book is because there it's got go. a beautiful picture of cakes on it. Tell us the link about food and, and why that's so very, very important to, to your your main character, to your protagonist, uh, 
And does she have a name? Evie Pleasant. Evie Pleasant. Is. And she's a cook. Yes. She is. She is. Uh, she was a absolute rebel rouser. She was a, a, a hellion as a child. Um, she was pretty much ignored by her parents who were – her father, you know, was busy doing agricultural things. Her mother was busy – looking after her father, making sure he didn't get into trouble. And so as a result, Evie as an only child has been yeah, a little bit neglected. So as a result, she's gotten into trouble to try to get attention, basically. So she spends her childhood doing terrible, terrible things uh, until after her father dies, uh, she's taken away to the city by her mother for a, a different life. Um, when she's uh, after growing up at university, she starts studying um, architecture because she a lot of her skills that she uses when she's younger, um, you know, breaking into things, <laughs> stealing things. Uh, a lot of it is just she's she's very very smart, so she has need, she has a need for an outlet for those skills. Um, and then she finds at university that she can actually put it to good use and study. Um, and then she meets a gentleman called Gabrielle Pleasant uh, at uni, um, and Bouvier is her maiden name. She was Evie Bouvier. Uh, and then they get together and uh, she's uh, seduced very quickly and he's charming and wonderful and uh, a photographer and she gets sucked into this life. She gets pregnant very, very quickly. They get married very quickly and then she finds herself, you know, sort of settling into a domestic life. She she loves motherhood. She has a little girl called Evie. Uh, sorry, a little girl called Mary. Evie, that would be strange. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's just, she just sort of settles into that routine. But once again, she finds herself a little bit at a loose end because her husband is away a lot. He, as a photographer, he travels all the time, very successful. So they have this big, beautiful house and she has a daughter she adores and she has nothing else to do. So she starts to cook and it becomes obsessive. She, she starts to make everything she can get her hands on. She starts with, you know, plans and cookies and things like that and then in the end there's I think there's a moment where her husband comes home and she presents him with a croquembouche that she has made complete with toffee and profiteroles and he tells her she has way much too much time on her hands um which is a little bit of a, a crushing moment for her uh, so, so really, this is this is her skill set. This is what she's channeled everything into, and she also feels, as I think a lot of people do, it is a way to to look after people. It is a way to make connections. Um, when she moves to Sweet Meadow, because she reinvents herself after she she divorces uh, Gabriel, uh, and she moves back to Sweet Meadow, and she reinvents herself as sort of like a an idealized 1950s bombshell pinup, um, where she decides that this is how she's going to if she has to go back to the town that she was so awful in she has to reinvent herself completely and if she is this perfect housewife and she can cook whatever people want then naturally they will all accept her immediately and want her to move back and of course you know that's never how it works so but in her mind that's the perfect plan uh, and I'm, I'm listening here to Leah as she talks and the enthusiasm, enthusiasm and the passion and the hand-waving and, and the excitement in her voice as she tells us about her, her latest book. It reminds me of some other people that we've had on the podcast, I think particularly of Sherry McCarthy and a few others. Uh, you can tell a real writer and you can tell someone who's passionate about what they do by the enthusiasm with which they tell you about what they're doing. Uh, now, you have, a, <laughs> you have a very interesting writing background yourself uh, your first book was published in 2010 yep. yeah that's correct and the name of that was the fortunes of ruby white yes and you said that was quite autobiographical in a way yes i mean what uh, it was autobiographical in the main character uh where she was in her early 20s she was a bit listless didn't really know what to do um and i and i was the same at that point because i had uh i had a university degree which an arts degree which you know gives you a really good um background in filing and writing essays but doesn't it's not necessarily that practical unless you move on to something else and what I wanted to move on to, I wanted to go actually do archaeology and I found because of my first year oh, bureaucracy, blah, 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 I wasn't able to. So I had an arts degree, which was essentially a bit useless. Um, I had a lot of hospitality background. Um, I had done retail and I just had no idea what, what I was going to do. Um, so Ruby was a, a channel in that way for my own listlessness uh and my search for direction um and but what happens to her i 
very keen to point out, does not happen to me because she gets sucked into a cult and the number of people who read it and said, oh, so, so what cult were you in? <laughs> and then I, I, had to, I had to reassure them that I have never been in a cult. So <laughs> that, that part was all research, but at least I feel I, I researched correctly in the sense that people took it, uh, took it seriously. So that was nice. <laughs> Yeah. Now, as um, Leah's talking here, I'm sort of cringing a little bit, everybody, because my life and my passion is my arts degrees, my arts PhD, and all those kind of things. Anybody, if you're listening and you have daughters out there or sons out there who are doing an arts degree, it is the highest accolade. Please, it's not useless. (laughs) Despite what all our engineer husbands and rich men tell us, (laughs) being an arts um, student is, is the passion of my life and it's the passion of Leah's life as well she just forgot to mention that everybody um and my daughter's coming along behind and she's going to be exactly the same an art student uh so there's plenty of us still in there hanging out and saying it's fantastic um I think without your arts degree you would not have done some of these very very interesting things that you've done that is true um, I, I I mean I will say I did I loved studying I loved it and I miss it and every now and then I think on Instagram the other day I put up a picture of the Barsmith Library just saying oh I want to go back and study because I, I did I loved it so much I to me it was I suppose I found it at a little bit of a dead end because um, one of the fields I wanted to get into well it was archaeology which was late advertising was what I initially went into arts to do because I had been told by my career counselor at school who was actually the tuck shop lady um, <laughs> my school liked to multitask mm-hmm. uh, that to do advertising I needed to do an arts degree and halfway through I needed to do psychology and halfway through my degree I was thinking this has nothing to do with with advertising at all and went to the university careers counselor who said what are you doing in an arts degree <laughs> so um, yes that was completely wrong and so I think that kind of added to the feeling of like I enjoyed the study for the study's sake I like, loved the topics that I did but when I left I thought well this isn't actually this hasn't actually springboarded me into an area that I was thinking of Mm. Um, but that that being said I wouldn't I would never have not done it I still I still I still love the experience yeah now when I was researching this woman everybody I came across another love of my life you had the Anna Green Gable set up there oh yes (laughs) yes yes it is it's one of those books I go back and I reread quite often just because it's that thing with all the best books you know and I'm sure anyone listening to this will know it's like visiting friends so I I have to go and visit her quite frequently just to just to regain a bit of balance it is a it's just a magical book yeah and tell us you love Anne of Gringo I'm not Anne sorry you'd love Enid Blyton as well I did I didn't actually read it as much and I haven't read it for a long time I think Anne was just one of those books that stuck with me but yes I did love it love Enid Blyton and Nancy Drew and and all of those things I did I did love um Trixie Belden I wanted to be Trixie Belden so um Although, you know, she's American. It's not it's not quite as authentic as Enid Blyton, but still. Yeah. And you can cook, obviously. If you're writing about cakes and your books have a food theme in them, you like to cook? I do. I like to cook. And it's been a long road because I hated it initially and I never grew up cooking anything. Um, I was very lucky in the sense that my parents are good cooks and my father in particular is – my father is one of those cooks who can go into a pantry and look and grab some things and make dinner, whereas I still need – I still can't can't quite do that. My husband can do that, but I, I can't. It fills me with terror. Uh, but I do. I do. I love cooking. But, yes, it's been a very long journey to learn to enjoy it. So, But I do now. And last night was a good example, I think, because I, uh, I, I was making a, a pasta, making a ragu, and um, we had apples left over because we've got a little tiny orchard at the back of our place that we've, uh, that we've um, grown, or my husband, rather, has, has, has put together. Uh, and we had all these apples left over, and I thought, I'm going to make an apple cake. We have no one coming over for dinner, but why not make an apple cake anyway? And it's that lovely anticipation. So, yes, I do. I do really enjoy it. Um, now, I'm picturing your bicycle shop to be a push bike shop. Am I correct? You mentioned a mechanic. That is right. Uh, oh, yes. No, my, no uh, push, push bikes do need mechanics, so that's what we do. Yeah. Um, everybody, if you're not getting the picture yet, this woman lives in a beautiful old sandstone house with an orchard where she home bakes her apple pies <laughs> and is a – I'm going to call it a women's fiction author. Is that the where we've placed you under the title of women's fiction? Yes, yes, that's usually where I sit and I'm, I'm happy to be there. Yeah, and um, wh- where does the life and times of Chester Lewis fit into that? Oh, that was that was really interesting. That was a that's actually an anthology, and it was a fascinating process. There was a gentleman who uh, ran a uh, a website called Auslit, um, which is different 
to there's there's a, a well-established Auslit, so it's a different one. <laughs> I point that out. Um, and he was looking for authors to write a life story of a gentleman called Chester Lewis. And the thing that was so unusual about it was that we were all given one chapter to write, and the first person would write the begin the chapter of his years, sort of zero to to ten. I got his teenage years uh, and then passed on to the next person. So the story built as we all wrote a chapter. Um, and that was that was fascinating because I've never done anything like that. And part of it is, I mean, it's a great responsibility in a way that you have to write a short story. I'd never written a short story, so that was new. Um, and you then have to also plant some seeds that the next writer can either take up and run with or completely ignore so um so that was that was really interesting and I think the thing that made me I, I said yes to the idea because I thought it sounded great and then when I found out that the book was the section that I was writing was set in 1940s Perth and I had never been to Perth and and, and not alive in the 1940s and absolutely panicked because I thought what I what am I going to do? This needs to be historically accurate. And then I found Curtin University, bless their souls, actually had a, had a, a website page called Perth in the 1940s with all this information on it, which was a gold mine. So I used that to write it. So, so yeah, so that, that was what it was. So the life and times of Chester Lewis is, is not technically like not one of my books, but it's, it's something that I contributed towards. So that was, um, yeah, really lovely and very interesting. Yeah. And I think this is part of the, um, journey that interests me about you and your writing, Leah, because I'm going to mention now Portia and Sibylla. Uh, yes. That's another very interesting project that you managed to get yourself involved in. Yes, yes, that's right. That was a call out. Uh, that was my first involvement with with the Auslit, uh, with Steve from Auslit. He put a call out for people to write an epistolary novel, so it would be just letters going back and forth between two people, um, and you were paired with another writer because people you wrote in and expressed your interest and you were paired with another writer and I was paired with a lovely woman called Emily Salkard. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Emily, if you're listening, forgive me. I love you. I'm sorry. Um, and we we took up the, uh, the mantle of this is a theme now. It's one of those things where you realise that as you're talking. Uh, I was a celebrity chef, and she was a fan. He was writing to me, um, so it was very, it was a very um, thinly disguised version of Nigella, which I thought was it was very funny. And so writing as Nigella was was, was hilarious because she has a very distinct uh, style, and uh, and that was nice to kind of to imitate that and imagine her, you know, in a hotel, having someone bring her macarons where she writes writes these letters to her fan. Uh, so yes, yeah, so we entered we we entered that. It was like a little competition and we won that which was really nice um so yes yeah, so that's available for download i think on my website it should be available for download on my website but i will check that and fix it if it's not <laughs> uh yeah yeah i think i think i saw that it was there so oh. the things that you're doing and the writing projects that you're involved in uh and the pleasant girls is not a small book you spend a lot of your time thinking about writing and then you squeeze it in where you can yet you seem quite prolific uh, well i i don't i would love to say i'm prolific i don't know if i am because these like those pleasant girls took several years uh, i mean as most novels do um and the anthology and the novella was a smaller thing. So I've only written three novels. So um, so to me that's, you know, I, when I think prolific, I suppose I think of, um, you know, Stephen King who can write a novel in three months, which I think I would have an aneurysm. Um, <laughs> but I like to, I mean, I, I think I'm always writing just in different forms and a lot of it can be work-related because uh, the shop, I mean, we do, we 60 hours a week as a minimum at the shop. Um, but I do, I'm not a mechanic. I do everything aside besides the mechanical work, um, cyclists at Adelaide can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, but I do a, a monthly newsletter and I do all of our marketing and I do all of our Facebook. So it's, it's, it's very different kinds of writing, different styles of writing, but, um, always, always going, you know, always keeping going. And then in the background, the novels, the ideas for fiction, um, and work is, you know, um, I would love to be able to write at work, but I can't, but the, the, the scope of the people that I meet, um, Yes, it's it's very it's very interesting. It 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 informs a lot of a lot of my work. Um, just the just the level of interaction, the human psychology, shall I say, of retail is fascinating. And I think anyone who who works in retail knows it is a crash course in psychology. Uh, it teaches you a lot, a, a great deal, very quickly. Mm. Do you ever envisage envisage a time where you you cut down your hours of work with your husband and focus more on your writing? 
I would love to. At the moment, it's something, well, initially that was the plan. Um, and, and I do remind him of this occasionally. Um, when when we started, he started the shop uh, 12 years ago and it was just my husband working by himself in a very small workshop. Uh, plus it was a shop front, so every time someone came in, he had to stop his whatever he was working on and go and, and go and help them. So as a result, and it, and it became successful very quickly, which is lovely, but as a result, I never saw him. So he would leave um, 7.30, he would get home 11, 11.30, and I would just shove some food into his face and he would fall into bed and that was pretty much it. And I was working at a sports publishing house at the time, um, writing marketing copy and dealing with lecturers, and that was all non-fiction. So it was, it was interesting that it, you know, wasn't – wasn't exactly where I wanted to be. And he said, look, you know, I, I probably need someone at the shop to come and help me out. Look, why don't you come and do, and I will quote if I, uh, as you know, I won't quote because it might not be, might not be correct, but um, he said it would just be sort of a half time job and you can come and you can do some work at the shop and then you can go home and you can write. And I thought, well, this sounds ideal. Why don't we try this? And, you know, we took the plunge and as soon as I got there, I was like, well, you, well, you don't have a filing system. You don't have a, you don't have a website. You don't have email. Hang on a minute. Let me, let me get this going. <laughs> so I, st and it was full time basically from the start. And then, uh, and the, the customers just, it just exploded. And I was never half time like <laughs> from the first day. Um, and because the work is very, um, it's quite specialized. A lot of the work that we do. So getting someone else in to replace me is, is going to be incredibly hard. Um, so yes, at the moment we can't see how we can actually cut my hours, unfortunately. Uh, but I do manage to, if, if winter, if the winter is very, very bad, um, we kind of hope for some rainy days. And then I managed to get about five or six half days last year, which was really exciting <laughs> where I could go home and then just sit here and scribble. And, and <laughs> See, that's um, the ultimate so, yes. revenge, isn't it, that you wish your husband's <laughs> business to go slow so that you can get on with your own I like and that's it. the problem we can't so, so I can't do that either I just yes it's it's it is that it is that um that catch-22 where because uh, I mean we, we're both working in the business so we need it to do well because you know most writers we need a day job so the day job has to keep going uh so the writing has to just keep squeezing around the outside yeah and um on, on that note you you're with um Pan Macmillan have you considered um going hybrid and putting some stuff out you're obviously very capable and you're obviously very very talented and somewhere that um, advertising and marketing must have paid off uh, because you know what you're doing when it come, when you're working your way around websites and things. Have you considered putting anything out under your own name or you like being with a publisher? I do like being with a publisher. Um, I like the security of, a, of being a publisher. I also like the fact that they know the industry so well. Um, and whereas I know I know very well where my skill set stops and, you know, anything to do with eBooks or uploading things or formatting, I think I would probably just fall in a heap. So, um, so no, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to be with a publisher at the moment. I mean, who knows, it could be uh, down the track if I decide that that I want to go alone, then I, I could potentially do that. But but for the moment, I, I feel very, very lucky to be with Pam McMillan, so I'm happy to stay with them as long as they'll have yeah. me. <laughs> and is... Uh uh, what is it? The Pleasant Girls out in ebook? Can you can you get it via ebook? It, yes, yes, you can. You can get it on uh, Amazon and iTunes. Um, I believe it's probably on an ebook on other formats, but sorry, in other platforms. But at the moment, that's the two that I found. Um, so yes, but I I have links on my website to different formats to buy it in. So if I do find any more, I'll. I'll pop it up there straight away. Yeah. And everybody, I have a couple here to give away as well that Pam McMillan have sent me. Uh, so I'll, I'll be putting those up with the, with the podcast to give away as well. After I have a little peek at one of them myself, I think um, find find out a little bit about um, <laughs> South Australia. Now you have a great supporter in your mother, um, and she was the first <laughs> one to help you out. Yes, that's right. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure in what. <laughs> well, she, she, she read your first manuscript when you put it out oh. there, and nobody came back to you. And she wished that it was a literary um, giant, That's but she's right. decided it's not oh. going to be. <laughs> yes, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, that was that was that was right for with the uh, the fortunes of Ruby White. I entered that into uh, what was I'm sure it's still the not the Vogel. Uh, I've gone absolutely blank. Would be the, the Vogel. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. Sorry, it was the Vogel. Um, and uh, and she and I gave her a copy as well. You know, to see see 
what she thought because she she reads widely um and my mother is is a very um sweet and supportive person but she's also not the kind of person who'll say oh this is a work of literary genius when it's not so you know i i suppose that's probably a good thing um but she read it and she said oh, i really enjoyed it oh you know funny it was more literary if only it was a more worthy book and i know i know that she meant it well but i was like oh <laughs> so that was that was you know um uh she's very straightforward and that's great thank you mum. um but <laughs> but everything else yeah she's always been very supportive of my work and and my father as well um uh yes he's he's he encouraged me to be a journalist he actually thought that that, that I would be very good at that which was very sweet um but I really really didn't want to be a journalist and I to me every time I thought of journalism I thought of people going up to someone after a tragedy and saying how do you feel now your family's dead and and I thought I I don't want to be one of those people <laughs> I think obviously you know this is a, an opinion formed at a very early age watching terrible television obviously journalists are wonderful and intelligent people um but yes I, I thought it was not for me um so yes, I think I think he's he's surprised and happy that that I've actually managed to to do some writing uh, for my career. Um, plus, also Ruby White, he was immortalised as the father in Ruby White. That's pretty much my dad. So he was very chuffed when he read it. So. Mm. Yeah, and I noticed you wrote. Um, there's a couple of things that you're writing. So obviously, writing is your passion because you've pop up all over the place. Um, first <laughs> of all, you wrote a piece on writing a debut novel, and then you followed that up with lessons from writing a book. Um, I won't take you through every lesson because I think there was a dozen or more of them, um, but you certainly learnt a lot from writing that first book. For our listeners out there who are writing their first book and, and have some of the problems that I read that you had, would you like to share some of those experiences with us? Sure. Now I'm going to have to cast my mind back because I wrote that piece a long time ago. <laughs> um, oh, well, it, I'll make it easier for you, um, even oh, when you're writing your next book, because I'm assuming some of the problems that you mentioned, like um, getting your plot straight, writing every day, all those kinds of things, they apply to all of us for every novel, I should imagine. Yes, that's very true. Um, writing every day is one of those one of those strange pieces of advice because for some people it works incredibly well and other people not so much. Um, I think it is the practice. I think you definitely, if you um, Chuck Wendig is an author who I really like. I like a lot of his advice. He's very very straightforward, very funny, um, and he. He wrote something once which I thought was so profound and so, but so correct, where if you write 350 words a day, just 350 words, which is, you know, as you know, not much at all, at the end of, I think it was at the end of a year, you have a novel, you've written a novel just from 350 words a day. And to me, it was such a good example of how you set very small goals. But if you're consistent and you hit those targets every time, uh, then you do end up with a body of work. Um, and it's something that seems impossible initially, but but is very, very achievable when, it's, when you look at it that way. Um, I also think, I mean, in terms of Plots, plots are always a tricky one. Um, I've found as I've progressed, um, Ruby White, I found a really interesting process because initially I was sort of writing a story and I would write a little bit. It was exa it was a perfect example of what not to do. I would write a little bit and then I would put it away and then I would leave it for four months until I felt, you know, that I felt ready to write, which is the worst thing. And then I would bring it out and go, oh, this is absolutely terrible. What have I done? And scrap it all and start again. So, of course, it took forever and I – had bits of pieces of this of this non-book, um, which was a very frustrating experience. And then in the end, I thought, you can't be one of those people that starts a novel and doesn't finish it. Like for f whatever you do, finish it. I don't care if it's awful, just get it written. And then I actually, it was quite a childlike thing. I actually got a piece of paper and I wrote, what are all the scenes I would like to read? What do I want to read? <laughs> what could happen to her that I would think would be funny? So I wrote them down and then I just went through them chronologically and did one after another and every time I was stuck I would just go no you have to finish the list and so I would force myself to write the next scene and then write the next scene and write the next scene um so I I think it's a slightly unorthodox way of doing it um but you know when you write your first novel that's that's what you have to do you know you, you do you just start somewhere and then you gradually refine the process as you go along and that can be through the redraft or that can be with the next novel or you know so I, I mean I love Ruby White it's it's still it, I'm still so fond of it and it's interesting I, I have wondered a few times now if I wrote that story again how differently it would come out because of 
the experience I've had since writing it and how much my process would change. Um, yeah, it's it's always it's something that I find interesting to to think about occasionally. <laughs> you sound like you're the ideal candidate for a program that we all use called Scrivener. Where you, I use yeah. Scrivener. I love Scrivener. <laughs> I wish I had Scrivener for Ruby White because I didn't. I I had it for for those pleasant girls uh, from from those pleasant girls on, and it is such a lifesaver. I, I sing its praises to everyone. <laughs> yeah, and for everyone, um, if you don't know what Scrivener is by now, I should. Um, but B, it allows you to write out of order and swap your scenes around and do all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, and, by the way, turn your book into a manuscript and upload it uh, <laughs> for, for the rest of us. Uh, and, and that works as well. Uh, now, I like the idea of you being able to focus on your writing. I've been doing a bit of reading around at the moment on deep work and being able to, and I think writers have done this from from the very beginning, um, except you just exploded that myth because you did do bits here and bits there, but in order to get to um, some sort of quality and some sort of depth, you really do have to focus at some stage and immerse yourself in the research and immerse yourself in the writing. And obviously you've done that because your book has has come out. So you must have stolen some time from somewhere. <laughs> it's the one thing that, has ta- that I have learnt, particularly with, with the day job is you have to just write wherever you can. And I have a post on my website where I was taking pictures of the places that I was writing and it was uh, in a forest in at the car wash donating blood. It was, it was just ridiculous, but it was you have to just squeeze those moments. And even if you look at it and go, well, I'm only going to have five or ten minutes, but it's amazing. Five or ten minutes, like you say, if you're focused and you know that that's all you've got, you actually can produce – quite a lot of work usually you just surprise yourself at how much you can output in that in that time um but often you also i find if you're in a different environment completely um you can actually get some really really lovely nuggets of of gold that you can bring out to the to the next draft um just from that change of scenery and just from that that change of environment um but yes if you wait i think my my biggest piece of advice is if you ever wait to be inspired to write you will never finish your book ever (laughs) you have to just sit down it is a job you know you do actually have to treat it seriously um you have to sit down and just and as you say immerse yourself in it um and sometimes if you're lucky enough to have a good period of time you can get to that beautiful stage where you're so involved in the writing and things are actually flying along you will find that you reach that really lovely yeah sort of deep state um where time doesn't exist and you're completely in it and the next thing you look up and you've been there for two hours and um yeah have been completely immersed in the work and it's those moments that that make it worthwhile those moments that you know are always worth fighting for yeah and i think that's what it's about everyone i think it's about uh going on and starting and moving forward and all that kind of stuff uh, even when you don't feel like it even when you think you haven't got time because at the end of the day I think Leah you're a classic example of you've you've got a little bit of a body of work there now and you're already talking about the next book which we'll move on to but it be, can can be done even if you're working um, 60 hours a week with a husband I, I'd do something <laughs> about that <laughs> It's true. I, I, I do. I, and uh, and my dog is very used to getting very lightning fast walks around the block. And then he, fortunately, he's older now, so he's, he, he'll snore under my desk while I'm working. But um, yes, for people who have full-time work and, and husbands and children, I'm like, I don't know how you do it. But I have writer friends who've produced books who, who have that situation as well. So I feel that, you know, I, everyone can make it work. Yeah. And another mandatory thing, everybody, is that you must have a sleeping animal either at your feet or sprawled across your keyboard interfering with your work. <laughs> It just goes with the territory. Now, I did notice I read the acknowledgement section of your book trying to glean a little bit more about you and your cheer squad was enormous. Oh yes, I'm 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 very lucky. My friends are super super supportive, and um, it's it's just wonderful. It's it's one of those things I say I couldn't have written it. I mean, I couldn't have written it without all of the people involved because the support is very important. But it's it's just lovely to have people who who will ask you how it's going but also know sometimes you don't want to talk about it and you don't want to be asked how it's going. Um, but uh, And they've been so lovely. And on Facebook it's been amazing. People have been popping up pictures of the book and even if they're going to the launch next week, some of them have still bought it early and uh, are showing other people and uh, I couldn't ask for anything more. It's just it's just lovely, lovely, lovely. Yeah, and that's a, that's a nice thing about um, being here in Australia. It is a small world. Um, the Facebook community is very strong and is very supportive. Um, I was looking on your 
Facebook page and I didn't get much further than Richard Gear. Richard Gear? Is he, is he on my Oh, Facebook it was Colin Firth. Sorry, it was Colin Firth. Oh. The other one of my heroes. Sorry, no, Colin Firth, he's up there. <laughs> yes, that's right. I felt, I felt, oh, Sorry, I felt everyone. <laughs> no, that's okay. I thought, well, have someone's been posting Richard Gear pictures without my knowledge? Um, no, yeah, that Colin Firth picture I thought was hilarious. So I, I had to put that up because I'd never seen, uh, 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 yes, uh, I'd never seen it posted quite that way, so yeah. <laughs> that was very funny. Sorry, I am, they, I am an Austin fan. Yeah, they're they're my handsome heroes. Um, I, I am in love with them, uh, and that's why you know, look, art students have got to stick together. If we've got in in like exactly. Nancy Drew and um, who was the other one, Anna Green Gables, and now we've got Colin okay. Firth, you can't be doing too badly. Although, as I said, um, I'm continue, continue, continuing to be amazed with your with your output. Um, you certainly do put your writing skill to good use. You have an agent Hayley Nash have you always had an agent oh actually no Hayley Nash is not my agent it's interesting Hayley Nash is uh was my acquisitions editor at Pam McMillan um so Fiona McCallum uh had said that Pam McMillan were potentially looking for what was right Hayley had left I think she was with Harlequin and she was mm-hmm. with Fiona at Harlequin so she'd left to go to Pam McMillan and uh yeah Fiona said I'm, I think she might be looking for authors do you have anything you want to pass on and I thought well actually yes I do so I forwarded the, the scripts I forwarded those pleasant girls to Hayley um, who took it on and then uh, yes left left Pam McMillan um, through the process so which was a real shame because she was lovely to work with but but that being said I've had I've got um, Daniel Walker Kate Paterson um, uh, and uh, Julia Stiles who is my editor who's I think a freelance editor for, for Pam um, so the team have been absolutely wonderful so um but yes Haley is not my agent uh, <laughs> but but she was a, a very important uh, entree into Pam McMillan so I'm hugely in her debt and she's an absolute sweetheart yeah and you've got a you've got a new book in the making is that signed up with Pam McMillan or you're just you're working yes. on it? oh can you tell uh, us yes. Yeah, um, I, can't, I can't really tell you much about it, unfortunately. Um, the thing that I found really interesting about that was when I first spoke with Pan about those pleasant girls when they were taking it to acquisitions um, and Hayley had said, look, have you written anything else? And I said, well, actually, in all honesty, I've been working on this one for so long. I haven't. I said, I have a germ of an idea for another one, but I have written less than a thousand words. Um, and she said, oh, okay, that's that's fine. I'll, I'll have a chat. And when they... Um, after acquisitions, uh, they uh, I, I came back to work and there was an email from Pan with the two book offer and I was like, oh my! First of all, you know, so excited to get it to get an offer. This is just amazing. It's you know, just just an incredible moment. And then I realised it was for two books and thought. I've only written one. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And I, you know, looked at the terms and they said, oh, you know, well, 18 months, that should be fine. And I, I, I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and then internally screamed for a while, but thought, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, throw away this opportunity. I have an idea and I have 18 months and let's see how I go. <laughs> <laughs> and how much of that 18 months have you got left, Hayley, uh, of Leah? Uh, Oh, I, I managed to do it in – actually, I asked for one-month extension, um, so I did it in 19 months and I handed that off to them last year. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so that one that one is uh, hasn't started the editing process yet, but um, they do have it at the moment. They're working on it as we speak, I believe, so I'll probably be starting edits for that fairly soon. So how long does this process take? They've got a completed manuscript off you in 2016 – and you're starting the edits. When will this one? When will the next one see the light of day? I suppose um, uh, pleasant that'll be next only... year. Yeah, wow. ne- next year for that one. And I think part of it was um, the fact that uh, Haley was looking after my work, and then when she left, um, I th- I could be getting this wrong. When they left, I think it was in limbo. I mean, it's publishing, so everything takes months, which is absolutely fine by me. I, mm. I'm I'm not a person who needs to have the book out straight away. I'm actually quite happy for it to just sit there because then I can do other things in the meantime. Um, uh, but, yes, they were waiting for, for Julia, who was their freelance editor. Um, they really wanted her to work on Those Pleasant Girls and they contacted me and said, look, she's working on other books at the moment. She's actually not available for a few months. Do you mind uh, if we push it back? And I said, absolutely not. That's fine. Because the longer that took, the more time I had to keep frantically writing the, the book I wasn't expecting to write so so anything that gave me more time is fine yeah. uh so yeah so it is that was that it has been an, a little bit of a longer delay than usual um but they've yeah they've been keeping me informed the whole time and you know we, it, it, as as you know any kind of traditional publishing you do expect to wait for months and uh, you just have to 
get on with other things in the meantime. Yeah. Now, that's in- a very interesting slice of life um, with the traditional publisher. Everyone, mm. um, probably a little gem that I wasn't expecting um, <laughs> and not being a patient person, person, I don't know if I could stand it, um, but certainly I, I know a lot of authors the... who've said that. Oh, yeah. so- sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, no, that's I, right. I know, I'm- uh, yeah, I do know a lot of other writers who said I couldn't stand it. I want it out straight away, and I'm I'm the complete opposite. I'm happy to wait, 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 wait. Yeah. And I think that's um, a part of your exuberance and part of your personality is um, what's coming through very, very strongly is that you just love life, whatever's whatever's going on. Uh, and I'm assuming you've already got the idea for if that finished at the end of last year, and you're working on another book. I have been thinking about another book, and I haven't written anything yet. I'll be completely honest. I I, I suppose the the period of because uh, the eighteen months of of writing the other one also involved doing structural edits on those pleasant girls. So there'd be a period of two two or three months where I was writing what is technically book three, uh, and then I would get the edits back for those pleasant girls, and then have two months to do those edits so it's uh it was such a compressed time period for me and it was it was so intense that when it finished I have have had I think six weeks with no writing at the moment where I've just been luxuriating and coming home and then actually began to take my dog to the park and actually began to cook something that takes a little while and so it's sort of normal life at the moment and at the time I I I you think it's sort of, you know, like literary babies in a way where you go, that's it, I'm never doing it again. And then, of course, an idea comes and you think, oh, oh I probably should write that. <laughs> that could be interesting. So I do have an idea that is germinating, but I'm worried that I'll jinx it if I start working on it yet because um, once, like once, I think once you have a deadline, then you do have to do the work every day. But while I'm thinking about something, I like to just let it marinate for want of a better term uh until I'm ready to to write so I'm not ready to write that one yet but I do have an idea (laughs) and do you have any um contracts do you have anyone is Pam McMillan wanting to sign you up again or are they waiting to see how the pleasant girls go before they um make any further steps Yes, I think I think they'll they'll need to see how the pleasant girls go, uh, and hopefully it goes well, of course. And then the next one, hopefully that one will go well as well. Um, I mean, it's the thing with publishing; it is a business, so they have to wait and see how you do. You have to, um, you know, try to make them some money, which is what they're there for. <laughs> it's you know, it's that it's that combination of art and business. Um, and I, I mean, I find it completely fascinating. And I, I've met a few people. I go to I don't I don't go to a lot of writers' festivals just purely because of time like the Adelaide Writers Festival is in our busiest time at the shop I never get to go I get to hear about it from my, from my customers which is which is great um, but the Salisbury Writers Festival is one that I do go to every year it's a smaller festival and it's interesting because it is more a festival geared to writers um, rather than something more general like the Adelaide Writers Festival which is writers and of course readers um, and it's a really nice inclusive friendly festival um, but I've met some people who who've been there who have written books which are these wonderful literary beautifully written books and had publishers come back and say this is gorgeous but we will lose money if we publish it because the audience is so small we can't make any money off it and and it's heartbreaking because they will say it's beautiful but you know at the same time publishing has to make money that's what they're you know that that's how they keep going and how they manage to publish other books um so in that case you know it's one of those things which i think is it's wonderful that self-publishing or being able to put your own work out is is so much more accessible now than it was for you a few years ago and and i think we're very fortunate that if you're in that position where you write something like that um you can actually get it out there regardless um yes yeah, so, but um, yeah <laughs> no i think it's an interesting i think it's a very interesting conversation Leah, and you've shared some great insights with us into what it's like to to operate within the parameters of traditional publishing, but you've also shared the joys of being able to focus solely on your writing while someone else took care of all those businessy things. Uh, and I think that, as you said, is is the advantage of that life. Um, it's not for everybody anymore, and it's certainly probably not the way to to gain economic fortunes. Uh, but it certainly has its advantages, and I know I had several authors. On who are very happy with their book a year, thank you very much, and have the publisher take care of all the all the dirty yep. work. Uh, so <laughs> it, it was great to hear you chat today and it was great to, um, for you to talk through the process with us, so I appreciate it. We wish you all the luck um, for thank your you. launch and I love the idea that Chapel Hill Wines are coming on board to sponsor it. Um, yes. Everybody else should have a winery sponsor their book launch as well. I think it's a great <laughs> idea. Um, and a second book launch is you could go out to their wineries in the vineyards and have a uh, author talk. That sounds very romantic as well. 
That does. That's a wonderful idea. I'll put that to my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my well, story friends. <laughs> yeah, riding bush, bush bikes through the countryside, through the vineyards Perfect. and opening up your little basket and bringing out your apple pie. It just gets better and better, everybody. <laughs> Look, um, Leah, you've been a delight to have on the podcast today. You've done beautifully you've done very well for someone who was nervous to come on board and didn't think she'd have anything to say uh i don't think i've had to say much at all so so thank you for sharing your book with us thank you for sharing your journey with us and i can't wait to see what you come up with next given the eclectic um writing uh i guess styles that you take aboard and have a go at and i have heard of that um what is it australian lit um fellow that you're talking about Steve and I believe he's changed the name of it recently he's changed the name to something else I think he had to something like that but I'll find out a little bit more about that everyone um as I said I've got a couple of copies of this book to give away so I'll put them up with the podcast whoever wants them um you need to get in quickly because I'm assuming they'll be fairly popular uh thank you Leah where can we find you uh, you can find me, my website is leahwestern.com and Leah is spelled L-I-A, western.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the imaginative handle of Leah Weston and I'm also on Instagram at Leah Weston Author. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. and there's a Facebook uh, yes, page up there, everybody. As yes, well. yes, yeah. yes. Facebook page uh, for Leah Western author as well. So um, uh, yes, I'm on there. I'm very easy to find. Yeah, and thank you, very, thank you very much for having me. By the way, this has been just lovely. Yeah, and now that you've done one podcast, I'm sure you'll be asked to do lots more. Uh, it is, it is a very friendly genre. We get to chat. Uh, and we get to um, spend a little bit more time with you than we would otherwise with a written written um, interview. Although everybody, Jen McLeod has a wonderful interview up there. You need to go and read it. It's all about, I don't know <laughs> what it's all about, but you've got to go over and read it. But she did interview Leah and, as I said, some of the questions were quite bizarre, but then so were some of the answers. That's hilarious. made me laugh. Um, typical Jen <laughs> McLeod, thank you. All right, thanks, everybody. That's another episode from Rider on the Road. I'm going to go for a romantic drive in the countryside with my children up to the bookshops of Mullaney um, because it is a beautiful Sunday here and the sun is shining. Leah, enjoy your beautiful Sunday. I hope that dog gets a walk and I hope that husband gets some attention. They will both. Thank you very much. Yeah. And that's <laughs> bye for now from Rider on the Road. Mm-hmm.